Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, it's sad. My laptop may be on its last legs, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Everyone sounds quiet to me, but I can I can roll with that. I'll figure Scott, it out. Scott, turn out the volume. There, everything's up all the way. The I can't. Button. I don't know what's. Maybe this is something else with the water getting into this thing. But so far, so good. <laughs> so we'll just let's, let's just ride with. It. I can hear you. It's just faint in the background. I don't listen to you all when we record this thing anyway. I just wait for somebody <laughs> to pause and look at me, and I just go. So it's fine. <laughs> I have suspected that for some for some time now, Scott. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security, the fate of the rational. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson of Lawfare and the Brookings Institution. I'm here with my two other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are back once again with our most serial offender when it comes to accepting our invitation to come on the podcast, Lawfare Executive Editor, Natalie Orbit. Natalie, thank you for coming back on the pod. Well, thanks, guys, for having me. Natalie, it's it's almost like you work for the same organization we're all involved in and are contractually obligated to show up on the podcast from time to time. I believe I wrote that contract, and I don't think that's in there, but maybe it should have been. <laughs> I was just going to say, I actually reviewed my contract very carefully, and I do not believe there was a provision relating to showing up on podcasts, let alone rational security. Spoken like a lawyer. So you're doing this on your on your from your own free will, which really makes me question your your uh, your judgment. But I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here. We're writing contracts for two new positions right now, so we may need to put that in there given our success at getting guests for the last two weeks. So, so, so we'll see what happens as we stick with this early recording time we've been rocking with. But until then, we're very excited to have you with us here today, Natalie, for what we are calling the Ides of March edition, because this is the season when alliances fall apart into backstabbing. As we are talking about some major developments in the national security world, uh, including some backroom dealing and some alliance making, that may not be playing out exactly as everyone anticipated. Topic one for this week, the Dragon Bear Reliance. Russia is turning to China for help in mitigating some of the most harmful consequences of the measures that the United States and its allies are imposing on it in response to its invasion of Ukraine. But will China play along? And what will its decision mean for the future of the relationship between the two major powers? Topic two, the secret life of feds. I'm trying to go with the secret life of pets, but I don't know if feds, pets really translates. Kind of works, kind of works. In a pair of recent cases, the Supreme Court largely upheld the state secrets doctrine that allows the federal government to quash civil litigation that might compromise sensitive government information, even as it hinted at some potential ways it may come under pressure in the future. What does this mean for the doctrine moving forward? And topic three, Garland's laurels. Attorney General Merrick Garland just celebrated one year in office. How should we grade his efforts to restore and reinforce the Justice Department's traditional norms of political independence and impartiality thus far? And what impact is that effort having on the other parts of his legacy, like his investigation of the January 6th insurrection? Alan, let me hand it over to you for our first topic. So in Russia's ongoing war with Ukraine, it is facing almost entire global pushback 
from large and powerful nations, with the notable exception of China, which is the closest that Russia can point to as a ally, supporter, certainly among the great powers in its war with uh, Ukraine. The reporting suggests that uh, Putin, uh, although he did not exactly clear the decision to go to war with Ukraine with Chinese uh, uh, President Xi Jinping, uh, made the Chinese aware of what he was going to do before he did it, and the Chinese did not raise particular objections. Uh, in fact, uh, it's pretty clear now that uh, one of the reasons that the war started when it did was because Putin wanted to wait until the end of the uh, Olympics so as not to uh, blow up China's spot, uh, as it were. And as the war continues to drag on, as Russia expends uh, resources uh, on the invasion, as it continues to suffer from the very high sanctions and, and other economic measures that uh, much of the world has applied to it, China's uh, increasingly becoming uh, Russia's most important lifeline, um, to the extent that there's reporting suggesting that um, not only is Russia looking to China for material and uh, supplies, uh, but that even includes some basic things like meals ready to eat, um, the rations that Russian soldiers need, which suggests um, not only how bad Russia's logistics situation is, but how much it is looking to rely on uh, China. So, you know, the first question I want to ask, and I'll turn this to you, Scott, is why is China supporting Russia in this, given China's longstanding commitment, one might say obsession, uh, with the idea of uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty? And I guess, relatedly, has China made a mistake in, uh, if not allying itself, and at least very closely associating itself uh, with Russia going forward? Those are two really good questions. And I think it, it's worth bearing in mind that we're China is engaging in a degree of trade and exchange with Russia, a degree of support, but it's not necessarily clearly yet at the quantum that Russia would like uh, and that the quantum Russia may yet ask for in the future. And those are the big questions. I think China's policy is still in a state of flux right now or uncertainties. We don't know exactly how far it's going to go to the map to back Russia up. Now, on the outskirts of the most recent Olympics, we saw Chinese and Russian leaders enter into an agreement, this very lengthy joint statement, where they said there's essentially no limits to their bilateral relationship, it's signifying like a really, really strong alliance. But that is something that's easier said on paper than it is actually manifested in practice. That's not something that we've seen like a long history of engaging in between these two countries, which is actually kind of in sharp contrast with, for example, NATO, right? Like NATO has lots of internal infighting, has lots of internal disputes over the last 10 or 20 years about a lot of security matters, particularly during the Trump administration, but nonetheless seems to have really solid underlying norms about what the alliance actually means in practice. Even though the actual NATO North Atlantic Treaty doesn't actually obligate uh, military action uh, in almost any sort of circumstances, in part because of U.S. constitutional reasons when it was negotiated. So uh, it's an interesting contrast saying like they really wanted to signify and send a strong message of Russian-Chinese alliance, I suspect as part of an effort to deter a strong reaction if one of them were to take some sort of action to advance their own national interests. And instead, what they've seen is, in fact, that strength of that norm is yet to be determined a little bit. Well, it's still in the process of being of evolving, I think. And they've been met, and China has seen Russia in particular get met with a super strong, very strong coordinated action by the United States as traditional allies, primarily in Europe, but not just in Europe, or of more interest to it. It's gotten South Korea on board, Japan, uh, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, a number of major economies and um, political powers in East Asia, much closer to the kind of China sphere of influence. And, uh, you know, are signaling 
over-concern about Russia's actions there, in part because I suspect, and China's well aware of this, that they're worried about China taking similar action in their own sphere. So China has to decide, are we going to risk provoking the bandwagoning of countries much more closer to us to more closely join the United States and European powers in pushing back against our influence even more strongly in a more assertive fashion by co-signing this Russian action, by signing on board, providing the more direct support that will undermine the Western policies? Or is it safer to keep some distance between Russia? That doesn't mean no support, doesn't mean no trade, doesn't mean no exchange, but some distance, at least on core strategic items like drones that Russia is seeking from China. And therefore give the broader, you know, U.S.-led economic alliance um, reason to not try and push as hard against China. Um, We'll have to wait and see where this comes out exactly. Uh, Long story short, I mean, I think Ukraine puts China actually in a really difficult position, not just because of that um, rhetorical point you made, Alan, which I think is a good one, which is that this does seem to run counter to stuff China usually objects to traditionally, although I'm not sure that hypocrisy actually is going to stop it much as consistency doesn't necessarily pay a lot on the world stage. We'll have to see. I'm not sure China, I think Russia may have overestimated the extent to which it had China's support in this effort, or China may have underestimated what the Western response will be, and that's entering into strategic calculus and maybe signaling, maybe a reason underlying some of this hesitation to fully get on board. Russia, in the last few days, reportedly, according to the U.S. intelligence community, directly asked China for assistance in sending arms to Ukraine. Uh, And the U.S. intelligence community, as it's been doing, seems to have taken the approach of giving that information to as many news outlets as possible, seemingly in an attempt to head things off. This, I think this, this dynamic has been particularly interesting because Jake Sullivan, who is the U.S. national security advisor, essentially said directly that the U.S. really doesn't want China to do this and that China would face some form of consequences. Um, I will note this is not important, but a Chinese official in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs had a truly incredible tweet where he accused Jake Sullivan for being of being a cowardly wizard for saying this. Unclear what the reference was meant to be? Wizard of Oz? I would just like to say... I am happy to be called a coward if I'm also called a wizard. I think that trade-off is acceptable. I'd rather be a cowardly wizard than a brave muggle. How's that? Ooh. What about a tin man or a scarecrow? Wizard. Wizard all the way. Wizard. Yeah. So so cowardly wizards aside, um, that, that, little, that little dust up aside, I do think there's a really interesting dynamic here. And one manifestation of that, another manifestation of that is this super interesting essay that uh, appeared in both English and Chinese in a a U.S.-based outlet by Hu Wei, who apparently is a sort of high-profile Chinese academic and has connections with the Chinese government, arguing that China should take this opportunity to move away from Russia and towards the West, that Russia involving itself in this war was sort of going to drag China down ideologically, that China had miscalculated in understanding the West as a sort of a falling region or falling power, um, and that it would be better for China to do a U-turn here because of how erratic Putin is being. Now, I should note, this is not the same as who's speaking for the Chinese government. And actually, right before we started recording this, the publisher of that essay announced that the essay had been 
uh, wiped from the internet in both English and Chinese within China, which I think is a sign that someone was not happy that he wrote that. But nevertheless, it did strike me as interesting. And and I saw a number of China scholars and reporters on Twitter discussing it as interesting that somebody who is as, as prominent as who, as connected as him, is willing to write for an international audience, basically expressing this view, at least of what China should do sort of morally and strategically, if not what China will actually do. Yeah, I think my overall impression here is that China is being very careful and is currently trying to thread a bit of a needle as it's waiting to see how things play out. I read in an article, and I apologize, I don't remember which one, but I think it was in The Economist, positing that um, Chinese scholars and advisors to the party were arguing that, you know, basically the Chinese government should just sort of wait this conflict out because the current unity that is being seen among NATO and the West more broadly and even other nations um, that are aligning themselves currently will fade as energy prices increase and Western populations, uh, particularly in Europe, where they're so dependent on Russian exports of oil, will stop being able to bear the cost or wanting to bear the cost of such high energy prices. You know, I think there's no way to to test that theory, but it does seem to me that there's there's a tricky balance from the economic side of this for China, which is that although there was this agreement in early February committing to much more cooperation, including economically with Russia, the economies currently are not all that interdependent. Um, They're increasingly so, but as compared to both countries' relations of their the main par- parts of their economy with other nations, the two of them together are not going to be able to displace the, the each country's reliance on other nations. Um, and that's particularly true in the energy sector for Russia, that over the longer term, you know, even in the in the February agreement, I believe it was part of that agreement, they committed to creating a pipeline between China and Russia that will be really meaningful, but it's going to take years and years to establish. And so it's just not possible for the Chinese population to displace the European population in terms of its consumption of oil that Russia is not going to be able to sell currently. Alan, do you have thoughts on this? Well, I I, I want to do my best attempt at a real-time slate pitch on this very podcast uh, and, and argue that uh, actually we actually don't want China to fully abandon Russia in this context for the following reason. T- tell me if you think this logic makes any sense. So China is not going to supply Russia with anything like the resources that Russia actually needs to win this conflict, right? That, you know, if Russia was going to win this conflict, it was going to do it quickly with overwhelming force. It is now bogged down and, you know, they are headed towards kind of a bloody stalemate that while obviously very bad for Ukraine is also very bad for Russia and particularly bad for Putin politically, right? And that no realistic amount of support from China is actually going to change that no matter how many, you know, Chinese meals ready to eat China sends over to Russia, right? At the same time, the West has a very difficult challenge in calibrating the level of economic sanctions against Russia, not only because the West, in particular Europe, is dependent on Russian energy, but because you actually don't want to have the entire Russian economy collapse, right? It's actually not good when a, when a nuclear-armed superpower goes into total domestic and political freefall, right? So 
a situation in which the West is quite united against Russia, right? But in which there is a small kind of economic escape valve, as it were, with respect to China, may actually not be a terrible equilibrium, all things considered, right? Now, I'm like 50% making this argument, just kind of devil's advocate, just because I'm curious what people think. Um, is this is this crazy? Or is there is there something to this to this logic? I'm, I'm like, legitimately curious, I, I don't really know. I mean, I guess my main question is, do we know that the Western strategy here isn't to have Russia's economy collapse? I mean, the the sanctions that have been imposed are pretty brutal. The approach seems to be to inflict a pretty serious amount of pain. I guess maybe I'm missing something. I don't see a huge amount of sign that there's a desire for that kind of release valve or, or a place where that release valve has built in. I mean, I, I suppose in terms of energy sales from Russia, but that's also so that Europe doesn't collapse or or freeze alternatively. I don't know. I mean, Scott, Natalie, what do you think? Yeah, I think the the one thing that's sort of ironic here, right, is that if the Russian economy collapses, it's all that much worse for China in terms of shifting toward Russia to shift some of its economic interdependence with the West, because Russia as a very weak economy is going to have a much harder time being an adequate substitute for lost interrelations with the West. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's an underlying logic to your point, Alan, in that what we, I think what it seems like Western pirates want to do is push the Russian economy to the brink and severely diminish it without completely collapsing it. Because frankly, if you lose the ability to export energy, that affects the global economy, leads to massive political instability. I mean, they want to put maximum pressure on the Putin regime and a little chaos and instability may just be the thing that, that ends up pushing them one way or the other. And that's the leverage there. Now, is China the outlet you want to have that steam released? I'm less clear about that. Nor do I think it's necessarily the one that Russia wants, right? Like you're basically making Russia very beholden to China. And Russia, which clearly envisions itself and wants to be a major player, particularly Putin wants it to be a major player in the global scene, wants to have control over its own sphere of influence, which does overlap with Chinese sphere of influence in certain important regards. You know, and remember, these two countries have not always been friendly to each other, even when they're both ideologically aligned nominally uh, through communism, like they still were at loggerheads for a good part of um, the Cold War. So, you know, I think there is a real question as to whether this is the outlet that either China or the rest of the world wants. It's easy to get a misperception about just how global the sanctions being imposed on Russia are. The actual direct sanctions are the United States, the West, and its allies, pretty much exclusively. Then you have a lot of countries that are nominally staying independent, they're not actually imposing their own national sanctions, um, but they're integrated with the global economy, which is predominantly centered around the West. So they often, their companies often have to substantially enforce certain elements of those sanctions, but there's still other companies, other elements that don't have Western ties that can still have business relationships with Russia and other elements. So there are these sorts of like pressure valves to some extent. Uh, but I really think the real pressure valve release is frankly energy exports. And the United States probably would be, I think, in a better position to say, we actually want to be able to control the valve and the pressure to be able to escalate or de-escalate on a variety of different fronts. Um, hopefully that's what they're thinking, because, again, I think they need to start thinking about de-escalation and putting packages together, saying, if we're going to change what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, we've got to give some incentives to Russia, and it can't just be a one-way ratchet. And, you know, China plays into that a little bit. Um, but again, I think actually Russia has reasons to want to have that pressure released by the West, even if China does step in substantially. 
I think the real like underlying tension here is the, is this assumption that um, China has been pushing, that particularly the current uh, regime in China has been pushing, which is that the the wolf warrior diplomacy, this idea that China needs to be aggressive, it can assert its interests and doesn't need to be as beholden to building friendly relations and a global order, uh, isn't like strictly international law related, but there are international elements of it that China for a long time seemed to be willing to kind of play along with that, at least in substantial regards. There's always human rights concerns and other concerns, but wasn't really threatening that order. China has done stuff in that regard more recently, not to the same degree that Russia has, uh, but still nonetheless has taken that sort of behavior. And I just don't know about if the, the this really comes down to that question saying, is you know the current regime, which it's worth noting, is going to be up for the Chinese equivalent of election. The National Congress is happening later in 2022, which is a, the, a period of kind of big symbolic significance, political transition potentially, although it's unlikely going to change anything. Who's actually in charge in China? Um, but still a point of like kind of domestic political pressure. You know, they've, they've got to say, like, is this the right tack we've been taking? And the real question is just how open to change and internal criticism is the Chinese administration? We're seeing in Russia how Putin's resistance to internal dissent is probably undermining his strategy question is whether the, the Chinese regime is going to be face some of the same uh, internal problems. Um, but I think we have to wait and see to know for sure. I mean, I think that honestly, this whole discussion helps underline to me just how much of a strategic mistake Putin has made in, in this war, because even if he gets what he wants and China comes through with all of the assistance that Russia wants, the look there is not of, you know, uh, a resurgent Russia reclaiming its its lost territories and reestablishing itself as an imperial power, which is the 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 energy that Putin was coming with in in his initial speech when he announced the invasion. It's Russia as kind of a junior bratty partner to China that needs China to come in and help bail it out. And so, from China's perspective, I mean, there might be a benefit there. I mean, it, you're tied to a bratty smaller partner, but it is helping establish China as, you know, a, a significant sort of locus of power in this sort of anti-Western bloc. But from Russia, Russia's perspective, just it looks kind of bad and it underlines how Putin has not achieved his designs. So it seems to kind of lose either way here. Russia is China's Belarus. Oh, that hurts. That's yeah, pretty that's brutal. Pretty brutal if you think about it too much. It's kind of, kind of, kind of maybe where we're at it. We'll see. Before we finish off this topic, I do want to mention or take a few minutes to talk about the implications that the war in Ukraine has for the conflict between China and Taiwan, because obviously there are some uh, some obvious uh, similarities between those uh, those two situations and also some important differences. My sense, and I'm curious what you all think, is that the way that the war has progressed so far is, I don't want to say good for Taiwan, but, but I, I am lowering my estimate of a Chinese, of an imminent Chinese invasion of, of Taiwan for a number of reasons, right? First, um, China has seen how difficult it is to uh, invade a country that does not want to be invaded. It has seen how difficult it is for a frankly unexperienced military to do so, right? Because as you know, big and high tech uh, as China's military is, it actually has even less experience than Russia's military in, uh, you know, large all forces attacks. And finally, China now knows the potential response from the rest of the world. Now, obviously, China is a stronger and more important economic power than Russia. So we should not expect the world to react to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan 
quite in the same way that it reacted to to Russia. But at the same time, there clearly is a willingness on the part of liberal democracies to use their economic influence in a very aggressive way and to accept real costs for themselves of doing so. So to me, for all of these reasons, um, you know, I'm much now more optimistic that at least the situation between China and Taiwan will just continue in its kind of awkward stalemate for the next five, 10 years than I was, you know, three weeks ago. I'm curious if you all think that I'm being uh, too optimistic uh, in that assessment. I agree with that assessment on the basis of the estimate of the global response and particularly the U.S.-led Western slash allied government response. I hesitate to draw, I don't think China would, and I would hesitate to draw too many one-to-one lessons about how the war is going in Ukraine and how an effort would go against Taiwan. It's just such a fundamentally different conflict. It's an island nation. It doesn't border Poland. You don't have supply lines that you can constantly be feeding arms in, much smaller population and territory than Ukraine. You know, it's just like wildly different, a lot of different fronts. It would be a wildly different sort of conflict. I think everybody knows that. The one parallel, though, I would say is that like, you know, we've seen what the United States and NATO allies can do hardening Ukraine kind of only really seriously over the last six months. You know, some stuff in the last few years, but really the last six months where we ramped it up and we made a really hard target. The United States has been hardening Taiwan for decades, decades, uh, and increasing it in recent years. So um, I do think that's reason to give out say maybe the United States can make hardened targets a lot more effectively than we might have estimated or thought even going into this. But it's such a different war. I, you know, I, I don't feel qualified to really say how much how much we can translate one lesson to the other. We accept to say that, like I'm, I would, I would want to see some evidence on that. I'd be skeptical of it otherwise. I have absolutely no idea how to make a transition here from two secretive states to state secrets in the United States. How is that? I don't think that was. Fair. Oh wow! That okay. was great, listeners. I'm Are getting real excitement from Alan and Scott. Here. Wordplay. Wow. I love it. Yeah, it rhymed kind of. It's well, kind of like a rap. It's perfect. Well okay, <laughs> I came up with that in the last five seconds, so I'm I'm glad it worked out well. So, <laughs> we recently got two uh, very interesting Supreme Court rulings on the question of the state secrets doctrine. One in the case of Abu Zubaydah, uh, the longtime Guantanamo detainee who is, was suing the United States in an effort to get information from two former CIA contractors who engineered his torture to use the information as part of a criminal investigation in Poland where the black site where he was tortured is located. The second case, uh, Fazaga of the United States, was a case by Three Muslim men who are alleging that they were targeted by an FBI counterterrorism operation post 9-11. And that case turned on the interaction of the state secrets doctrine with FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Um, Essentially, the, the question being whether FISA's application here interacted with state secrets privilege such that the plaintiffs could get access to the information or whether that was not the case. Um, I think we were we were excited when the court took these cases because it, it's not every day that the Supreme Court weighs in here, but the court ended up ruling against both of the plaintiffs. Uh, there were some pretty spicy dissents. Natalie, I know I think you're, you're our in-house state secrets expert here. I'm curious what you make of these rulings and of the fact that the court sort of took these cases only to rule in a, in a direction that was very favorable to the government. Yeah, I think 
To be honest, I think Fazaga um, ended up being pretty narrow and pretty closely tied to the statutory interpretation of um, FISA, the FISA section that was relevant to the analysis. Zubeda, obviously, I find very interesting um, because of my ongoing interest in Guantanamo issues. But I think if you guys don't mind, I want to sort of take it back to explain what state secrets is, because I think it's a really fundamentally oversimplified and misunderstood doctrine. So I will I will try to be brief in my lecture on state secrets, but I feel pretty strongly about it. So state secrets doctrine was a judge-developed rule um, that started with a case called Reynolds in the 1950s, um, which was a case brought by widows of pilots that had been killed in a plane accident in Georgia. Um, and they had uh, it was a wrongful death suit against the government. They sought um, the crash record from the government, which denied it on the basis of no, there were there is secretive military technology on those planes, so we can't tell you about the crash. The the Supreme Court upheld this notion of the government should be allowed to protect secrets and classified information, although it actually is not necessarily tied to information being formally classified. And so this doctrine developed. The thing is that state secrets was always supposed to be an evidentiary rule. Um, So it was supposed to be something where in civil litigation, a plaintiff, presumably, though not necessarily, seeks some discovery from the government. And the government says, no, we can't give you this because it's too sensitive. It's subject to state secrets. So they assert the privilege And then what is supposed to happen is the court is supposed to require the government to give some sort of substitute for that information to the extent possible or to make available what is not state secrets material. So this is all in the civil context. In the criminal context, there's actually a statute that governs this um, that's called SIPA, the Classified Information Procedures Act, that has much more of a balancing act built into it requiring a balancing of the equities between a criminal defendant and his or her right to access information that's being used against him or her, against the government's right to or need to protect sensitive national security information. In the civil context, there is not that same balancing act. It's all a judicial doctrine. What's happened over time is it has evolved from an evidentiary rule into basically a justiciability rule. So the vast majority of cases in really sensitive areas have just been dismissed outright, rather than having a process where the court is involved with adjudicating what is proper for the government to withhold in terms of evidence, but trying to allow the plaintiff in most of these cases to proceed with his or her complaint. So this is happening the most in the context of torture cases brought by, for example, Abu Ghraib um, victims and Guantanamo victims, but also by other individuals who have been involved in, you know, the sort of ugly moments of American activity. The other thing that is an interesting and I think highly relevant piece of this um, for people who are critical of the way that state secrets doctrine has developed and expanded over the years is there's really quite good evidence over history that the government does indeed at times use state secrets privilege in order to conceal embarrassment rather than to legitimately protect national security information. 
And let me be exceptionally clear, there are times when the government needs to withhold national security information. That is, in my mind, uncontroversial. There is no world in which there should not be an ability of the U.S. government to withhold classified information. That said, they do it way too much. And they do it unjustifiably. And there is proof over history, including actually in the Reynolds case from the 50s, um, where it turned out when all of when the report was declassified in, I think, 2004, early 2000s, it turned out that there was no secret military equipment. It was just a really bad crash. And that's happened consistently. There was um, a committee in the 70s looking at intelligence abuses and found something similar with respect to the government's assertion of state secrets and trying to conceal things that it should not have been doing. So critics have some evidence in their favor to be skeptical of the government's use of this doctrine. Well, so I think state secrets, these cases say interesting things about state secrets and its future against this backdrop, where we've seen the doctrine actually come under a lot of scrutiny, particularly since the post-9-11 era, because of this perceived overreach, uh, in some cases, fairly demonstrably proven overreach, uh, particularly looking back historically at the Reynolds cases or in other cases. We're seeing, actually, I think, in these cases, which the court took up because the government lost in the court below, right? Like the Ninth Circuit, they didn't do it voluntarily. They did it because the Ninth Circuit ruled against the government in both of the lower cases. Um, And so the government appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does not say no to the government when it it seeks cert on national security-related cases. And at that point, you know, I think it was pretty likely, and I think we actually had a conversation about this back in November or something like that, uh, when these cases were were on the up for oral argument. And I think we the expectation was like the government's actually probably going to win on some grounds on these. The question is what sorts of grounds. And there, I, th- I think it's kind of interesting. In Fazaga, we saw this pretty narrow holding where the argument for the non-governmental party was that you know, hey, the FISA actually superseded state secrets, actually installed this whole separate regime for sharing information. It was like a bold, aggressive reading of the statute. There was actually concern that the court had taken this up to say like, oh, no, Congress could never interrupt state secrets doctrines, constitutionally grounded, which is actually what the executive branch argued has traditionally argued. The Supreme Court didn't reach that issue. Instead, the Supreme Court said, hey, we think there needs to be a clear statement rule. Like if Congress is going to overrule something as fundamental as state secrets, it's going to do so pretty expressly. And for a variety of reasons related to the FISA statute, the way it's used and the way state secrets is used, it doesn't look like Congress intended to do that here. I actually read Alito's opinion there as like kind of maybe suggesting Congress could do this. Certainly it leaves open the possibility. And I think that, you know, that's a sign that the government, while the government tends to make maximalist arguments, particularly on constitutional authority around foreign affairs and national security, that it would be unwise to rely on that or push that too aggressively. In Zubeda, it's kind of interesting. We saw a much more fractured set of court opinions, like half the court wrote some version of an opinion, agreeing with others, disagreeing with others. And it was interesting. We saw Breyer lead the court in basically saying all of these requests uh, for information, where Zubeda had been asking, basically asking for to be allowed to have CIA contractors disclose information about his treatment at a black site that also may or may not, but seemed likely to have led to the conclusion that the black site in question was located in Poland in relation to foreign litigation um, and using a domestic procedure to get the court's assistance in getting that testimony and information. The court said essentially, look, there's reason the the U.S. government's objection is to the fact that this location was in Poland. And I'm not surprised by that the U.S. government's taking that position. That sort of like key intelligence relationship is something the U.S. government protects very importantly, so long as the other partner country wants it protected. And it sounds like the Polish government's not ready to have that information out yet, even though it's 
kind of in the media, um, but doesn't want it publicly acknowledged for a variety of reasons. That's a tricky question. Like, I, I, I don't necessarily feel great that the U.S. government's position, but I understand why, if they want to have intelligence relationships with other countries, they feel the need to really go to bat to defend those relationships along the parameters that they were agreed to. But there we saw the court fracture, and a lot of people say, well, we should at least send it back to see whether they can get information about how it was treated, all the other parts of this. Breyer led this contingent that said, no, we can't segregate out how he was treated from the location, at least on the way this request is, is constructed. But even he kind of conceded he could come back and make another request narrowly that's structured differently and could get a lot of this information most likely if he needs it. The government had already said in this case, oh, you actually can go ahead and testify about your treatment. You can't testify about where. So I actually think there's pressure coming back here. And then we had Gorsuch, Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan as well, differently, Justice Kagan in concurrence of the two in a dissent, come in and saying, no, actually, this should be remanded. We should be like taking the narrow, the government slice out of this very narrowly and let this party get the information that they want that's in touch on this narrow slice of state secrets. That's a narrower conception of state secrets than we've actually seen like particularly uh, applied in all cases. Like this didn't just automatically re- result in the most justices' views as getting rid of this case altogether and this sort of request, particularly because it's not even a civil litigation. It's actually about foreign litigation. So, you know, I think if I'm the U.S. government, I take these as a little bit of shots across the bow saying, yeah, we have state secrets. Supreme Court's willing to back us up on it. But if we overreach, that consensus is maybe in a little more danger than would have been the case 20 years ago. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I think it's important to explain for context that so this is this relates at the request for testimony from CIA contractors relates to a proceeding in Poland as well as a proceeding before the European Court of Human Rights. The difficulty that I think is um, sort of buried in here is that Zubeda was actually not going to be allowed to testify himself because his lawyers brought these cases in Poland. But the way that legal correspondence works with Guantanamo detainees is that so everything that a detainee ever says is presumptively classified. It goes through legal review process and it will be rejected for transmission to one's lawyers if it doesn't have to do with the proceeding. So he was not able to actually write a declaration or testify in any respect for the purposes of these two foreign proceedings, which means you know, what evidence is he going to produce in these cases that are about his torture? I think it's also worth flagging. We've mentioned Justice Breyer's majority opinion in the Zubaida case, how this interacts with some of his questions at oral argument. 
So listeners may remember some skepticism about this from, I think, the, the rational security crew. Um, there is a truly bizarre exchange between Breyer and Council for Zubaida at argument where uh, Breyer asked <laughs> Zubaida's counsel if they had filed a habeas or something to get him out. And then after counsel explained that, and I quote, I'm looking at the transcript, there has been a habeas proceeding pending in D.C. for the last 14 years. Breyer said, there's been no action. Don't they decide it? I mean, you just let it sit there. So that was bananas. And I think that some of us, and I will definitely identify myself here, uh, who were perhaps trying to find some mitigating circumstances, were wondering if Breyer was using this to kind of set up another call to close Guantanamo um, in a concurrence along the lines of what he has done previously. I don't know if that was what he was thinking at the time, but clearly that went out the window. So it is pretty striking, again, I don't know what's in Justice Breyer's head, but that we have that line of argument where he at least seem to be feigning ignorance about the circumstances of Zubaida's continued detention, and then comes out with this majority opinion about uh, Zubaida's inability to get this material for the court hearing in in Poland. Um, putting that all together, it's I would say it's it's not a great look. Maybe I'm missing something here, but it doesn't uh, fill me with enthusiasm. Yeah. And the one quick note I'll add to that, and then Alan, I would love to hear any thoughts from you, is, you know, this this points to the reality of the situation for Zubeda, um, who is reportedly, um, according to the Senate um, intelligence report on the CIA rendition program, was the first detainee to face the enhanced interrogation program. He has been trying to seek a remedy for his torture through multiple venues, habeas case that was filed in 2008, this proceeding in Poland, the proceeding before the European Court of Human Rights, and the legal black hole that was created through Guantanamo has stymied those efforts. So, you know, no one was ever held criminally accountable in the United States for having committed torture. And there have been exceptionally few, if any, instances where detainees and and also others, including the Abu Ghraib victims um, and others who were subject to mistreatment by U.S. forces um, or U.S. officials, have gotten any remedy for what is now very widely understood to be torture. The only thing I'll add to this discussion is is what I found particularly interesting was the um, who wrote the dissent in Zubeda, or specifically who joined on to that. So this is uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Sotomayor who are, are not known to be uh, ideological uh, compatriots uh, as a general matter, but in, in this case had a very similar view on the matter. Um, I, I always like seeing opinions where you have a kind of odd ideological bedfellows arrangement. It uh, lets me indulge in my optimistic fantasies that the Supreme Court is not a 100% political institution, and it makes it easier to teach constitutional law to skeptical uh, one else. So it's always nice to grab onto one of these opinions uh, when I can. And I think what it does show is that, you know, obviously the probably most important divide on the Supreme Court is between the quote-unquote conservatives and liberals. Um, but there's also a divide. I mean, there are many cross-cutting divides. And one of them is between the, 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 the one might call them the proceduralists and the moralists. You know, one thing that I think is notable when you read both Justice Gorsuch's opinions and Justice Sotomayor's opinions as a general matter is that although they have very different judicial philosophies, they both, I think of all the justices, are more willing to see cases in uh, straightforwardly moral terms and to focus very much on that 
you know, potentially at the expense of the finer legalistic distinctions that, you know, people like Justice Kagan or the Chief Justice, right, uh, spend uh, spend kind of more more time on. And, and so it is. It, I thought I found it interesting to see these two justices saying, you know, this person was tortured. Everyone knows it, and we should not be letting the state secrets doctrine launder that fact. Right. Uh, look, I don't think that there's five votes for that, especially when you include the general reluctance of courts, including the Supreme Court, to really wade into foreign affairs and especially national security issues. But I think it is it is notable and just another indication that um, the the conservative liberal split uh, is not the only split on the Supreme Court, and that uh, fortunately there are other uh, sometimes cross cutting uh, divisions uh, on on the court as well. I think it's really astute. And I also think it kind of highlights some interesting things about the majority who's in this uh, Zubeda opinion as well. I mean, Breyer is known in the foreign relations, foreign affairs space, particularly where there's not an intersection with like constitutional rights. Like the guy's a, a deferentialist. He's, he, he actually believes in deference to the executive branch on a lot of things. It's, he's an administrative law professor, right? Like that's kind of baked into his worldview to some extent. And here, particularly because this is state secrets doctrine, but it, it doesn't actually directly implicate uh, constitutional rights. I think you arguably that a lot broader cases do, but not the specific question here. You know, I don't think it's as surprising that he would join up with Justice Kavanaugh, who has a very strong deferential view around national security affairs, not necessarily other affairs, but definitely national security affairs, at least where Congress doesn't get involved. Justice Kagan is like willing to kind of like push back on procedures, but is like a professional concurrer, I feel like right in these sorts of cases, right, where she's always willing to like put a little like more technical and I think often very insightful like angle on things, but ultimately isn't going to undermine it. Look, this is the one who wrote like executive administration, like the classic defense of like executive power and authority and the benefits of it. So like there's a reason that she also embraced strong deferential views. It's kind of an interesting question to say what happens when Breyer retires, because um, actually you're seeing this kind of coalition dwindle a little bit with Gorsuch coming in. I don't think, you know, Justice Barrett, we don't know exactly where she lies on this stuff. Some of critical, I think, of administrative state stuff. Um, you have Justice Gorsuch, Justice Sotomayor, much more willing to kind of second guess the government's positions on a variety of things. And Justice, potential Justice KBJ, Ketanji uh, Brown-Jackson, who is... President Biden's nominee, who is, we, you know, I think we have, to, I would need to dig a little deeper in her case law. And frankly, she hasn't have that much that's really wrestled with these issues. She's only been on the D.C. Circuit for a few months. I think has like two published opinions now. Uh, but like comes from a criminal defense background, comes from a background where she's often, often against the government. Um, so it's kind of an interesting time if you're a government lawyer to say like, what is the Supreme Court's approach to this going to be? I think Breyer is kind of reflecting a uh, consensus around a heavily deferential view that like might be dwindling a little bit. Uh, Kavanaugh still like keeps it in place. Maybe Kagan does too, but maybe not as strongly. So it's, it, I don't know, it's kind of an interesting sign of shifting times around these issues. I think you see that in how narrow some of these opinions actually ended up being. Well, speaking of the Justice Department, the head of the Justice Department, one Merrick Garland, uh, celebrated a very important anniversary this past week. March 11th was the one-year anniversary of his appointment as attorney general. And it really brings us to uh, a moment where it's worth thinking back and reflecting upon his role in that office. I would argue, and I think a lot of our colleagues have argued, including Ben uh, Wittes and Quinta, you may, have, you may have also made arguments along these lines, um, that Merrick Garland is a notable attorney general. He's somebody who came in to a moment when the Justice Department had been under immense scrutiny and criticism for having abandoned some of its norms, uh, or at least compromised some of its norms of political independence uh, and integrity um, that have traditionally underlined the office, at least for the 
recent decades. Um, and he very consciously came in as a reformer, somebody who was going to say, I'm going to strengthen these norms, put them back in office. And frankly, somebody with the gravitas and the political reputation to do that. Merrick Garland is incredibly well respected uh, on all, both sides of the aisle uh, and has been for many, many years. He's a very known quantity, despite the failure of the Senate to confirm him. Um, he is somebody who's very well respected uh, in a lot of quarters of Washington, D.C. Um, and so, you know, he has this very expressly stated mission. At the same time, he's also wrestling with some really difficult political calls that the Justice Department has to make, particularly around prosecutions relating to January 6th insurrection uh, and potentially the Trump administration as well. So my question for you all is, how should we be evaluating uh, Attorney General Garland at this one-year mark? Um, what do we make of the Justice Department and the direction he's turning it in and, and where it's likely to go? Alan, you're our Justice Department alum. I'll hand it over to you first. So yeah, I think it's important to distinguish between kind of two elements of uh, the AG's tenure so far. The first is the kind of, call them below the line changes and reforms that he's making that are probably quite quiet that we don't know about. And then this broader question of how to deal in particular with the unique nature of January 6th. And so I, I think those pose very different sets of challenges. Um, and so I think it's important to, to separate them. You know, on the former, I suspect he's doing a very good job. And the fact that we're not hearing much is uh, a very good sign. You know, the Department of Justice, I think, works best when you have um, good, calm, sober leadership from the top. Um, and things just proceed in the orderly fashion which they are supposed to proceed. And so I think just having him, having his deputies, right, having Lisa Monaco as the deputy attorney general, having the people he's brought in um, for the National Security Division where I used to work, having Matt Olson, who is terrific as the AAG, just returning to the normalcy of kind of the Obama years, uh, I think is an important step in both increasing morale among the line prosecutors, right? Many of whom have very different political views, but I think almost all of whom had some serious problems with some of the choices that DOJ made uh, under uh, Trump uh, is important. Uh, and then also uh, what I'm sure is just the kind of general day-to-day -day work of making sure that the procedures that are in place for DOJ are being reviewed and are being followed. And so I'm sure he's doing a good, good, good job there and he will continue to do that. And probably the less we hear about it is probably the, the better because then it suggests that all is proceeding uh, appropriately. I, I think the much harder question, and you know, Quinta, I want to ask you next because you and Ben wrote a, an excellent uh, uh, article kind of touching at these questions, is you know, what does it mean in terms of returning to DOJ norms and rule of law for how DOJ should deal with January 6th? You know, not just potential criminal liability for former President Trump, but for other politicians and, and other, you know, other high level level figures. You know, on the one hand, DOJ needs to do justice and enforce the laws, no matter how controversial that is. And this is something that, um, you know, Garland has actually said just in the last few days that DOJ is not going to shy away from politically controversial cases. On the other hand, no matter how just or righteous, for example, a prosecution of Donald Trump might be, right, assuming that the underlying law supports it and the underlying facts support it, it would by definition be a huge norm-breaking action that would, uh, rightly or wrongly, impose an enormous reputational cost on the Justice Department, you know, at least among the called quarter of Americans who are hardcore Donald Trump supporters, not to mention, you know, another quarter who voted for him. I, I have no idea what the right answer here is, right? 
And I, I, I don't know if Merrick Garland does either. Um, but that to me is a difficult question. And I think the problem is that no matter the decision he and the Justice Department take in these cases, we won't know the long-term consequences of that for not just the Department of Justice's culture and rule of law, but for broader American political culture and rule of law for, for many, many years. Certainly, we're not going to know about that on the one-year anniversary of Garland's uh, appointment as Attorney General. I think that description of the bind that Garland finds himself in is accurate. I mean, what I would say is, I think, Alan, the, the way you've kind of divided it between, you know, getting things, quote unquote, back to normal at the Justice Department versus addressing the genuinely extraordinary situation that the country finds itself in is kind of the tension right now. And I think you see that in how Garland has tried to kind of walk this this line where arguably, you know, he's trying to say the Justice Department is apolitical. We are not subject to political pressure. We are, you know, independent. We are bearers of this kind of democratic tradition of the rule of law. But you can really argue that that could take you in two very different directions. I mean, so one direction is to say we don't want to sort of upset the apple cart and engage in a investigation or prosecutions that could be perceived as politically motivated by a significant portion of the country because we want people to trust in the Justice Department and not feel like, you know, there are political prosecutions of, say, a former president or his associates happening. On the other hand, you can also look at that and say, well, if you don't take those actions when they are perhaps merited, then isn't the Justice Department just acting politically in a different direction? It's holding back from holding people accountable under the rule of law when perhaps they should be held accountable. And doesn't that also undermine public confidence? And I think this is really a bind. I'm sympathetic to the position that Garland finds himself in. I will say that it seems to me, and, and Ben and I have have written about this along with Andrew Kenta at Fordham, who's done some really smart work on Justice Department independence post-Watergate. And what worries me is that the solution that the department seems to have found for itself is just to not say anything. <laughs> that, you know, we're we're now in this situation where, as Ben and I wrote, the statutes of limitation for the various specific offenses that Mueller identified Trump as having committed or potentially committed in the Mueller report vis-a-vis obstruction of justice are beginning to run down. Uh, the clock is sort of starting to tick down. Now, the the most serious of those offenses, the statute of limitation expiration date is far, far in the future. But it is also true that the clock is beginning to tick down and the Justice Department hasn't said anything one way or another. It hasn't even given any hints. And I do worry that if the department's solution to these kinds of binds is just to sort of keep its lips zipped, that that ultimately contributes to the same lack of public confidence in the department that Garland identified himself as having entered into this role in order to fix. Because one of the things that we learned from the Trump era is that, you know, the norms and independence of the Justice Department are not obvious to the vast majority of Americans. And so if Garland just doesn't say anything about how he's handling the Trump investigations or lack thereof, a lot of people are going to assume that that is because it's out of fear 
even if he has a well thought out reason about the importance of norms, the importance of not appearing political and so on, not communicating that is just going to allow people to draw their own conclusions. And I do worry that the department is sort of defaulting to this silence um, in an effort to appear apolitical, but that that just sort of further undermines the situation, acknowledging that he really does, Garland really does find himself in a bind here. I am also very sensitive to that bind and really don't envy the tension there. I I will say, I think that there is perhaps a middle ground to be had, which is to just do more public affairs minded speeches to talk about the affirmative things that the Justice Department is doing to sort of reinstate the rule of law, even if it is not the things that would get a lot of attention, such as indicting Donald Trump. But they are making some really significant changes internally, and they are pursuing cases that would not have happened under the Trump administration and and doing a lot of work to, for example, one thing that's not going to be on the public radar and and maybe doesn't matter for the public, but I think is is hugely influential is um, I have friends in DOJ who report that morale is just much better now because... Um, the attorney general and um, the deputy attorney general both make themselves available to career main justice officials. They both grew up in main justice um, or in U.S. attorney's offices. They um, have a lot of experience doing this line work before they became political appointees. And so they carry a lot of credibility and they're really investing in reestablishing within the Department of Justice the type of environment that we had seen in previous administrations um, before the Trump administration made things so political and so subject to interference and politics. And they've had some notable successes, right? They they won two really important cases, a hate crimes case and a civil rights case, the former against the um, killers of Ahmaud Arbery and the latter against the police officers in Minneapolis that were responsible for uh, George Floyd's murder. And they also have done things like they ended the the ban that the Trump administration had put in place against um, consent decrees, consent settlements with localities, police departments. Um, so this is a really important tool for addressing um, police brutality complaints. You know, people can there are, there are lots of criticisms about those, but it is unambiguously an important tool that the Justice Department has used in the past that was not present at all during the Trump administration. And they've also been doing a lot more antitrust work. They've thrown a ton more personnel at the antitrust division to do things um, in pursuit of large tech companies, which is something that you know everyone cares a lot about and forgets that DOJ actually plays a role in that is important. They've done a fair amount in voting rights, uh, suing both Texas and Georgia, Likewise, as with antitrust, they've thrown a lot more personnel into the civil rights, into the voting rights section. So these are all things that, you know, maybe we should be talking about more. It's it's not going to, you know, displace or take away what is very valid attention to be paid to what are what is the Justice Department and what is you know, Merrick Garland as the leader and as the the voice of it doing with respect to Trump and with, with respect to January 6th and with the very weighty responsibility of trying to reestablish a sense of rule of law in this country that is desperately needed. But I think it is still worth noting those other facets of what he's been doing. 
I'll say the only thing I want to add to this, because I agree with all this, is that, you know, I hope the Attorney General Garland and his staff soon turn to think of some of the broader norms and practices the Justice Department also needs to wrestle with that so far it hasn't approached that don't relate necessarily to Justice Department independence, but some of the fundamental legal positions adopted by the executive branch during the Trump years. You know, we saw the Trump administration release like a cavalcade of Office of Legal Counsel opinions in this last few weeks in office, and they are all still on the books. Um, none, only one has been kind of like reconsidered, but wasn't even actually reversed. Instead, we saw a uh, very like narrow and of limited credibility factual distinction come in about a request made by Congress for certain types of records and how it interacted with the statute. And so the new Office of Legal Counsel issued an opinion reaching the opposite conclusion based on this limited factual distinction. That is not particularly encouraging for the rule of law, I think, on one on the one hand, and also just to get at the fundamental issue that the Trump administration adopted some like pretty aggressive views about executive power. And look, those views aren't like totally alien to the executive branch. There are lots of people who abide by those views and you're going to have to have an internal debate about them. But having it, even if you reserve the option to make those arguments in the future, it's very different from having them on the record in a written opinion and letting it sit there. Um, the one of the ones I'm most sensitive about is a super, super broad view about the president's authority to withdraw from treaties, even where Congress adopts express limits to do so. That goes beyond what the Justice Department had said publicly before. And we saw a similar opinion that's even more aggressive from you know early Bush II administration actually get tamped back and withdrawn more or less by the Office of Legal Counsel. I kind of expected something to happen here. And we haven't seen any motion around really any of these opinions yet that I'm aware of. Now, maybe that's just because they have a couple of years left in office. The assumption is we'll get to it eventually. But frankly, I, I think when you start rescinding and replacing off legal counsel opinions as a, you know, in your last few weeks in office, that is not a great sign that you are trying to push towards norms that are more enduring. And I'd like to see the Biden administration and Attorney General Garland take that on sooner than 2024. But they're very busy, so we will have to see uh, where it ends up on their agenda. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion for today. We are just about out of time, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons for the week. Alan, while I hand it over to you for the first object lesson. My object lesson is the male Santa Marta Harlequin toad, specifically the strong, loving, and very clingy embrace of such toad. Uh, I am referencing to a wonderful Atlantic uh, article about this <clears throat> Colombian rainforest. I was to say frog, but I don't know if a frog and a toad are the same thing. This Colombian, yes, Scott is shaking his head. Sorry. Oh, I've, oh everyone's going to at me on Twitter. Oh my God. Anyway, there's a great Atlantic article by Catherine Wu uh, about this really cute animal. And the gimmick is that uh, the way these harlequin toads mate is that uh, the male finds a willing female and hops on the willing female's back and then just holds on to her for literally months while she goes about her business until she fi decides that she has a, a nice spot and it is time to reproduce, at which point she releases her eggs and then fertilization happens, et cetera, et cetera. All the while, the male uh, toad, who is not eating during this period, like shrinks by like, like a factor of a half until he finally can you know, reproduce and move on with, you know, get on with his, his life. So it, it's... <laughs> Nature's amazing. Evolution's fantastic. It's just worth it for that. Also, it just it made for a lot of just it's a lot of jokes about clingy men. It's great, and the the toads are very cute. It's one of these um, species in which the male of the species is is quite a bit smaller than the female of the species, which is is uh, unusual and, and uh, always makes for some uh, very cute pictures. Uh, so I recommend it. It's great. It's great bedtime reading.
which is uh, what it was for uh, my wife and me as we were putting our child to sleep uh, with a lot of cute pictures of these totes. Totally PG, by the way. So many object lessons made me want to know what Alan was like as a single person. <laughs> and this one more than any other <laughs> that I could think of. We'll see. No, my, my, my record is a three-week hug. I, I can't do months and months seems like really long. <laughs> it's, it's very uncomfortable at that point. Quinta, what about you? I unfortunately uh, have, once again, a somewhat depressing, but perhaps also inspiring object lesson, which is the protest of Russian journalist uh, Marina Ovzianikova. Uh, so listeners may have seen this. This is the woman who worked at Pervikanel, the Russian Channel One News, which is a state-run uh, like major television network, who wrote a sign that said uh, in English, no war Russians against war. And then in Russian, this is propaganda. They're lying to you and walked uh, out on the stage behind a Russian news anchor who was doing a broadcast on live television um, and recorded a message ahead of time, essentially explaining her father is Ukrainian, her mother is Russian. And she uh, said, I think that the the war is a crime and Putin's responsibility and that the Russian people should rise up. So as of when we started recording, I think she'd been in police custody for quite some time without uh, her lawyer being able to find her. Um, And there had been reports that she might be facing up to 15 years in prison. Um, This is a pretty astonishingly brave thing to do, Uh, brave to the point where when I first saw this video, I thought that it had been faked because it seems incomprehensible that anyone would do such a thing. But it's it's worth watching the video of her walking behind the news anchor. It's worth watching her the video she filmed ahead of time. There are English subtitles uh, that that you can find and, and that will will link. Um, and I just wanted to draw attention to it. I think that, you know, there's a moral complexity here and that uh, Ovzianikova was working for Bedwi Canal for many years before she took this step. And she does say that she was ashamed of that. Um, but just a reminder of the incredible bravery of Russians who are protesting right now and really putting an unbelievable amount um, on the line to speak out against the war. So it's worth watching. Well, for my object lesson, uh, I am bringing forward uh, a non-object lesson because I am bringing your attention to the absence of something. Um, this is actually relates to the very first object lesson I ever made on Rational Security 1.0 years ago when I was an initial guest. And at that time, I pointed out that there was an important war powers report that the Trump administration would be filing uh, in a few days, March 1st of 2019, 2018, I think it would have been, 2018, I think. And uh, that encouraged people to keep an eye out for it. And it actually arrived uh, on time-ish, more or less, uh, by the Trump administration. Unfortunately, the Biden administration just hasn't followed in that tradition. Uh, There's an annual report on the legal and policy frameworks for engaging the use of military force that Congress has said the White House is supposed to provide to Congress every year on March 1st, and then release the unclassified portion of that report to the public. Um, for the second year of the row, in a row now, we are two weeks past that deadline, and the Biden administration, for some reason, has not released that report to the public. It has commuted to Congress, but for some reason has not seen fit to actually disclose the report to the public as the statute requires. Um, this is the same report that Benjamin Wittes and I ultimately sued the Trump administration over to get the release of in 2020 uh, successfully, more or less. They settled it. We didn't actually go to litigation, but we won on principle uh, or in effect. And I really am really beguiled as to why this is such a consistent problem now two years in a row. First year, you could say, okay, growing pains, figuring out what they're doing just a few months in office. Um, and I get that. 
And now we're at a point where, yeah, March 1st was a big day at the State of the Union of Ukraine. You have a lot of things happening. But the report did go to Congress. It's just a question of actually reading the part of the statute that releases the public. And I really think this is something that I hope Biden administration people who may be listening to this uh, will seriously reconsider and actually abide by the language of the law and get this report published quickly. You know, you really, this is actually the only war powers report to my knowledge, one of very relatively few. There's another actually one that was installed recently right next to the U.S. code that really requires this information to be revealed to the public. And that's a really good thing. Um, While there is information that needs to be kept classified, I think the Obama administration really emphasized the point and the Biden administration has picked it up, at least in rhetoric, saying it's important to have transparency around key national security and foreign relations decision making, including the legal authorities underlying our ability to do things like, you know, engage in wars. But that really gets undermined when you see people routinely begin to ignore clear statutory requirements when they clearly could comply because they actually have the report already written. They've given it to Congress. They just aren't releasing it to the public. Um, so I am hoping that somebody in the White House Counsel's Office or National Security Council listens to this podcast. I know a few of them do, at least on occasion. Uh, and I hope you will consider not disclosing this report uh, and get it together and get it posted on the whitehouse.gov. Um, as the Trump administration did, for the first couple of times. Then they kind of fell off the wagon and then we sued them. But we don't have to do that. So let's just get on uh, get on it and get this report out to the public and have a real conversation about uh, national security authorities and war powers. Nice report you have there. Shame if anything yes. were to happen to it. <laughs> yes. Uh, with, that, uh, with that rant uh, under my belt, Natalie, I'll turn it over to you to close us out. Okay. So my object lesson was going to be a really beautiful book that I read recently And let's throw it in. And then I have another one that happened as late breaking news during our recording. I read a book called, I think it's called At Night All Blood is Black. Um, It is a winner of the International Booker Prize. Um, It is by um, an author named David Diop. And it's the story of a Senegalese soldier fighting on behalf of France in World War One. It is beautifully written. It is absolutely immersive. And it's it's really just quite a feat. It's a little bit hard to describe, um, but the good news is that it's extremely short, so everyone can read it by this time next week, and we can discuss it again on Rational Security, or at least listeners can do so um, and have a little book club after their weekly listening of Rational Security. My second late-breaking object lesson relates to Guantanamo Bay, because there was just a report um, during our recording that prosecutors are negotiating a plea agreement with the five so-called 9-11 defendants and the military commissions. Um, This includes Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's the most well-known detainee. So this is a really big step. It would be negotiations to avoid the death penalty. Carol Rosenberg in the New York Times has an article about it, I believe co-authored by Charlie Savage, um, so people should really check it out. But um, for broader context, um, there are currently 38 detainees left at Guantanamo Bay. There was At its height, Guantanamo had about 780 detainees in it. So we're down to 38. Two have been convicted in the military commissions. That's the trial court at Guantanamo. Ten are currently in proceedings, including the five who are now in plea negotiations. There are 19 who are held in indefinite detention but recommended for transfer. So that means that the U.S. government is currently under obligations to be negotiating bilaterally with other countries who will be able to take them. Many of them can't go back to their home countries because they would be 
subject to mistreatment um, back home, which is we are not legally permitted to send people home to such circumstances. And that leaves only seven detainees who are held in indefinite detention and not recommended for release. So we are down to an incredibly dwindling population. I should say also one of the two people who was convicted in the military commissions just last week, I believe, um, news came out that his sentence has been deemed complete. Um, this is Majid Khan. And he he had a very notable trial, I think a month ago, two months ago. And so his sentence is now complete, meaning that he also must be transferred. Um, so we have a lot of people waiting to be transferred and not very many people who are destined still at present to stay at Guantanamo for either continued detention or continued trial. Um, so this is a really big development toward the move of closing Guantanamo, where the biggest question is what to do with the people who remain there. So I really encourage people to check that article out. Um, and if you are so inclined to do a little bit more digging into the background and the context. And frequent listeners of Rational Security may recur that we actually uh, predicted that this might uh, result in renewed pleas uh, without a death penalty uh, after the Majid Khan decision. So listen back to that episode. Um, that said, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You'll find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at thelawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this very podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at RITL Security and whenever and wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. And be sure to read our written work at lawfareblog.com. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan Quinta, and our guest, Natalie Orpin, I am Scott R. Anderson. We will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>